Hello, welcome to Not The BBC. So the following is a conversation with Daniel Miller. Daniel is a writer and art critic, and he's also the deputy editor of IM1776, which is a magazine I've mentioned before on the channel and one I highly recommend you check out. So I wanted to get Daniel on to discuss the magazine and the project, but also to talk more broadly about art and the culture. Uh, I really wanted to get a different perspective on things and Daniel th thinks a bit more in broader terms than some of the, the, the previous guests I've had on. So I was really excited to chat to him. We talk about the pitfalls of identifying as a dissident and the pitfalls of thinking about art and dissident art in too much of an ideological way. You know, in many ways, this is the issue with the modern art world where it's just become massively politicized. And so it's, inherent, it's sort of lost any inherent um, artistic spirit. And so, yeah, we talk about that and we talk at length about the issues with the modern art world. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think you will too. So by all means, we will just crack on with it. Daniel Miller, welcome to Not The BBC. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, so I would say my audience, or at least a fair chunk of my audience, probably aren't aware of um, of yourself or of I am 1776. So do you want to sort of start off by introducing yourself and introducing the, the project and letting us know what it's about? Well, I'm a writer and an artist of some description. And I'm also the literary editor of the magazine. So maybe to define that job a little bit, there's this famous story by Carl Krauss, who was famously a, a very pedantic editor, and he edited his own one-man publication called Die Fackel in Vienna just before World War One. And there's a story about him that one day they came upon Karl Krauss on the eve of World War One as he was poring over one of his famous comma problems, because Karl Krauss was always very concerned to put put the commas in the right place. And they said to him, how can you be working on your, your comma problems at a time like this? And he said, well, if everyone had taken care to put the commas in the right place in the first place, then we wouldn't be in this situation. <laughs> so that's somehow my uh, hero in terms of how I understand my own position. But of course, yeah. I also didn't start the magazine. It was begun by... Mark Granzer, who is mm. the editor, and I can't necessarily speak for it. I can only speak in terms of my position with respect to it mm. and how I understand it and why I'm involved with it, which is that I think actually there are an increasing number of somehow similar projects today. And in general, they're trying to define or reflect on all of these complex uh, realities which are now converging hmm. to some extent. They have this kind of ideological dimension and this political dimension and you know a psychological dimension and all these other kinds of elements which are sort of wrapped up and entangled with each other. So the challenge from the point of view of, I think, anybody who's trying to think clearly is to 
analyze the situation in a way that you're able then to get some kind of a, a grip on it. Mm. And I think that's what we're trying to do. Um, I would say that the specific terms, which I think we'll get into, uh, of, let's say, the term dissident, or let's say the term right, mm. as in left and right, uh, require some analysis in themselves because they're also not really self-evident, actually. And the way in which this rhetoric exists and allows for certain kinds of insights but then limits others, I think, is worth thinking about very carefully. Mm. Because, um, for example, there's, let's say, a widespread belief that it's possible to describe the current global political situation is as dominated by the left in a certain way and i think that it's important actually to ask what we really mean when we say that mm. and whether that's even uh, a really precise understanding of how ideology and politics works together so in a way also trying to explore that relationship is is a focal point uh, for us yeah it's um you know you do find yourself leaning back on on these labels often just it's just a simple way to to communicate and to sort of identify yourself but in terms of actually sort of drawing out a a deeper critique of what's going on um it can yeah it can sort of leave you you somewhat wanting right we often talk about sort of leftism but in a lot of ways, a lot of the the issues of sort of financialization and the materialization, or at least the financialization of our world of our world, is um, you know a lot of that sort of right wing economics. It's been you know it's been allowed to run away with itself. So you you can sort of end up in dead ends when you try and um, when you sort of try and define yourself in these terms. So it's it's definitely sort of quite a scrappy, sort of messy time at the moment, um, and. So yeah, in terms of so you said you can't speak too much about the the founding of I am seventeen seventy six, but as the, as a literary editor, what are you looking for from your from your writers and from from the, the submissions that people give in? So what are what yeah what, what what's of interest to you and what's sort of specific to the magazine? I think we're looking for people to make intelligent arguments um, from whatever angle, really which then illuminate some kind of <clears throat> facet of contemporary reality. I mean, we're, we're engaged also in a kind of war against confusion to some extent. And so we're trying to clarify issues also mm. ethically mm. in order to understand where the potential space for movement is. Mm. And I would say that, at least personally, you know, I feel resistant to the deployment of more ideological kinds of arguments, also because the essence of the left-right division, really, when you actually get down to it, 
is that it constitutes a front in the Schmittian sense. It's a friend enemy distinction. And so for the left, the right is the enemy. And for mm. the right, the left is the enemy. And the question of actually who or what is the real enemy beyond these factions or how there is some kind of mechanism which is even generating these factions or these understandings or this these identifications i would say is the is the real object of inquiry actually and how can you how can you grasp that and how can you also speak in a way which cuts across ideological divisions in order to present mm -hmm. positions in you know the clarity of their their own their own reality actually i mean i i understand also that you know it's not necessarily possible to get along with everybody and mm -hmm. you're always going to have enemies and it's not true for example that you should somehow bend over backwards to attempt to you know let's say negotiate with positions that actually you really mm. have to reject but i do think there's a possibility of at least trying to appeal to all people of good faith and will mm. and uh i think that's actually necessary to do so because you know, when you start actually hardening ideological positions, then what you end up with is an ideological movement which is overdetermined by ideologues. Mm. And these kinds of characters exist both on the left and the right, and in fact operate very similar kinds of, let's say, political projects mm. in terms of how how ideology functions to group together people around a kind of set of doctrines of ideological doctrines rather than i would say higher values so mm. you know we're interested i think at least i am and i think you know i think mark agrees although i don't want to speak for him in um you know these higher dimensions of human possibility actually and and mm. and the capacity to to achieve them and these are to some extent spiritual conceptions and i think they definitely exist beyond purely ideological conceptualizations yeah, that that makes a lot of sense in terms of well, first off, you know, there's a, there's a fair bit in there. You know, first off, in trying to achieve clarity, um, it's uh, you know a lot of people because of how because of sort of how awful the last few years were. A lot, of, you know, there was a real sort of um, sense of urgency, not helped by the more hysterical elements, which you know I'll, I'll admit I you know I, I fell down and I spent some time in those because it's all you know it's always a bit of a journey and you're trying to you know trying to piece things together. And when you have these sort of hysterical elements sort of talking about, you know, imminent doom or whatever, 
imminent doom and stuff like that it sort of it creates this real need for for action right so people are are sort of very keen to kind of organize quickly and whatnot um and there yeah it, it sort of removes the scope for actually um for actually kind of coming to any deeper understanding of of what's going on and also anyone who has taken the time to think through the malaise realize how sort of deep-seated it is um when you actually do take the time and so you know once again the notion that you would that you would get too caught up in in ideology and you would fall into quite narrow narrow camps um is um is is missing the point and you know it's amazing how quickly these dissident tribes get very ideological um and so i really like that you guys are are conscious of that and you're you're trying to sort of communicate above that and yeah you want to reach out to as many people don't you i mean uh, clearly wasting energy pandering to someone who who hates you doesn't make sense but trying to communicate in a way which sort of reaches above these um narrow categories and can sort of extend beyond these um yeah the sort of you know neurolinguistic programming that sort of controls um debates and that sort of has segmented society um is is really critical because ultimately you want to yeah you want to appeal to as broad a sway of people as of high quality people as as um as is possible so yeah i, I really like the the way that you the way that you spoke about all that um so yeah in terms of kind of rolling forward what um more in a sort of broad sense what is the role that you see art playing in growing dissident movements you you, you critiqued um you know being too ideological and being run by ideologues there but do you want to sort of expand on on your thoughts of that you know on that topic well i think to return to this point which we somehow briefly touched on earlier and now to expand it but the question of the term dissident mm. or the notion of let's say the notion that we're participating in a in a dissident movement is also something that we should think about carefully i think that the term dissident probably has some advantages over the term right um because it's it's not ideological actually and it, in a way reasserts a more classical problem of political philosophy where your you know your opposition is is tyranny basically rather than you know necessarily an ideological structure um on the other hand you know it's also vague in some ways because it doesn't contain within itself a real conception of what we're actually opposing and to some extent it's you know it's a little bit cheesy because i mean at least when i think of you know the history of dissident movements i mean obviously there were some figures there who were you know truly heroic uh you know the distance of soviet russia or um you know eastern bloc communism and to compare oneself to them you wonder well do i have the right to do so mm. you know and of course you know the the dissident identity can become a kind of narcissistic um mm. 
self-conception when you when you think to yourself well you know i'm like fighting the system somehow and the system is fighting me and you know i don't know i mean like even if it's true to some extent it might not be the best way to to think about things mm. um so i i make this point um I don't know what else I can necessarily offer with respect to it at this time. I think that one thing that is sort of interesting about the way actually the term writer's being used now, originating really from the fact that its usage was expanded massively by a kind of power structure that conceives of itself as left. And so right became, you know, bad. And so basically anyone that was on the wrong side of you know what for better or worse we could call the regime became became right wing and that's also why they understand the regime is left wing but i don't know there are sort of more complicated issues involved in that mm. so therefore to declare oneself as right wing is to ultimately and probably essentially to declare oneself somehow oppositional to whatever the hell it is that we have now mm. And it functions as an interesting signifier in that respect because, you know, actually it is true, um, although maybe it's becoming less true, that, you know, the signifier right is fundamentally a mark of exclusion, actually, from all of the main institutions uh, and the official kinds of cultural networks that now exist. It's, uh, they, don't want, they don't want right-wing things you know, mm. in their art galleries or, you know, in their libraries or, you know, on their, on their reading list. And that actually also now has kind of come to include, you know, any books published before, I don't know, like 2016 even, like anything that somehow has some trace of of a culture before the culture of the last five minutes, everything that's not totally subordinated to these extremely rapidly changing and highly rigid ideological criteria becomes right. Everything becomes right. The whole world becomes right. Yeah. Even, even Giorgio Agamben becomes right wing now, you know? Yeah. The world is shifting below everyone's feet so so you've seen in other words like you've seen a certain kind of rhetorical inflation in this word and from the other side i think that people have then adopted it also mm. you know to say well okay then we i am against you whoever you are you know who's, who's calling me right wing okay i'm right wing people say um but I don't know still, it doesn't seem to me the end of the discussion, actually, because even once you've established that you're opposing them, then you have to still understand what you're opposing them on and why. Yeah. So from the point of view of art, you know, we have this situation now, I think, if you begin from a kind of critique of the way that art has been basically instrumentalized in 
to serving as a kind of social tool, mm. um, a political and social tool by a kind of administrative bureaucracy, which now comprises the sort of publicly funded half of the art world. But of course, like the art world is, you know, very complex financially, you know, and also incorporates other kinds of dynamics, which are actually just purely criminal, but this is sort of another matter. So the main public institutions and the main public museums that in a paradigm where they think they can find kind of meaning for their existence by, by criticizing, by re-examining, by exploring, by challenging, by problematizing through art, uh, various kinds of um, notions that they think are somehow mm, sort of reactionary hangovers from, from, from the darkness of our oppressed past. And that, for example, you know, we can use art to, to challenge the reductive gender binaries that hitherto have uh, oppressed free humanity. And, and if we can then do that, then, you know, somehow um, more freedom will, will emerge. Now, it seems like in the last few years, it's been become increasingly obvious that actually this isn't really the direction of travel at all. And all of the, let's say, criticality of these institutions is somehow simply producing more repression. And also the people who work in these institutions somehow aren't able to see that. So it's a very peculiar situation in that respect because you have these kinds of almost um, like they're institutions, but they're somehow revolutionary and they want to revolutionize the foundations on which they themselves have been mm. originally founded. And in the course of pursuing this project, they've almost undermined actually their own existence to such a radical degree that it's very difficult to even encounter anything now in, um, you know, contemporary culture, which is really worth seeing. I mean, it's, mm. it's, it's really hard, actually. It's, um, you know, it's, I think, something to do with, you know, the nature of the, of the human spirit and its, you know, perpetual attempts to escape from ideological uh, control, actually. So the more that you try and impose these criteria on what people are allowed to do and what people are allowed to say and what people are allowed to read, the more stupid you become, actually. And mm. the, more, um, the more superficial and the more uh, anti-human, actually. I mean, this is also what happened really with, you know, Soviet stalinist realism they converted art into this kind of propaganda tool and then the kinds of scenes that they were depicting just became less and less relatable and you know more and more alien and, and even disturbing and this is also what we have now we don't really have even like any kind of humanity actually 
in contemporary uh, yeah, art anymore. It was interesting that even even Putin made that um, made that analogy in a recent speech. He's sort of talking about how it's sort of the yeah the propaganda in Western art. Is sort of he, he said it's almost worse than the than the sort of um, propaganda you know arm of the the Politburo. Or I can't remember the specific specific structure that he spoke of. So yeah, it was interesting to really kind of put things in their in their perspective. Um, but yes, it's an interesting idea that, you know, these um, sort of an institutional bureaucracy that's kind of running these things, but that, and these things tend to exist for their own, for their own sake, right, and, and to expand their own, um, their own remit, and they sort of just sort of self perpetuate themselves. What's interesting is, like you said, a lot of these, the people involved in this, they're sort of making their own positions untenable, because it's just moving the dial so quickly, um, that it's, um, yeah that it's just sort of like churning out and spitting out um like a sort of um yeah like, like a sort of conveyor belt a lot of the the people and the ideas and what's you know what is feasible and um and what's not so yeah do, do you want to talk a bit more about the sort of malaise in um in in the modern art world beyond that like what both on the on the left and the right like how do you see the um, and obviously we've spoken about the the danger of using labels like that but sort of to look across perhaps the the right wing or dissident space and and the left wing space do you see sort of commonalities in in where the the art is falling short well i think we, we should begin from let's say looking at kind of the institutional space and mm. and the the official space um and then we can see how in response to that certain kinds of different or alternative discourses start to emerge. So if you consider, you know, what the culture system looks like from the inside, it's obviously thousands, actually hundreds of thousands of people, you know, and there are educational institutions and there are, you know, funding institutions and there's a kind of hierarchy whereby, you know, people move from one zone to another, like certain kinds of things are, you know, uh, privileged and, and welcomed and encouraged and, and certain kinds of things are not. And there's also a collective psychology which is involved in this whole operation whereby, you know, people are attempting to understand what they can do from their own personal perspective to advance on a personal level to where they want to be, you know, and what that means in practice, at least has meant in practice in recent years is attempting to match you know one's own thoughts and opinions basically to what one understands you know the powers that be are kind of commissioning at this moment and this produces mm. in general a kind of conformist mentality and this is actually the mentality which is reflected i think in you know in most contemporary art institutions it's, it's a mentality of conformism and also a kind of fanaticism like a fanatical conformism actually mm. because from a certain point of view, in order to distinguish yourself from within this kind of system, you have to become like even more, you know, radical than than you, you're signaling. Yeah, to signal your your own sort of um, allegiance, you need to you need to go you know far and beyond what the what the actual people at the top would do, and so it sort of descends into this hysterical loop. It furthermore is being based entirely on what one thinks the other wants. Mm. So, 
that's also true for the other. So they're also trying to understand what the other wants. So there's actually nobody, even someone who's making really decisions anymore. And you can see this in the way that actually the discourse on art has politicized almost in reaction to a lack of confidence, whereby very few people are even able to say like what's good or what's bad anymore. This is why they shift the discourse mm. into talking about political and ideological criteria and works of art as being in a way positions within a discursive game. Like they don't have autonomy. Mm. They, they function to somehow, you know, intervene into social and political realities. And the reason why they function like that is also just because it's actually easier from a psychological point of view to discuss that than it is to say, okay, well, this is somehow really good art because, you know, it, 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 it moves me, um, you know, to a kind of cosmic pity, you know, you don't hear like museum directors speaking like this anymore, you know, and I think they don't really have, I suppose, the, you know, the confidence or the, even like the integrity to do so, because they're also people who have come through these bureaucratic mm. mechanisms. They're not just kind of like weird eccentrics, which is actually kind of what they used to be. So people on the outside of this system or somehow excluded from this system or unable to find their way within this system, you know, which includes, you know, actually really good artists, who are understanding their art in a, you know, much less discursive and much more expressive way, begin to look at it and they, okay, what is going on here? What they see first of all is what looks like a system of taboos or somehow positions which are being promoted by institutions um, you know, particularly related to race and, uh, and uh, you know, gender, according to uh, cutting edge contemporary, you know, understandings. And they say, okay, well, we should transgress those somehow because, um, you know, this is this sort of nerve center of the institutional ideology therefore and so in order to contest institutional authority we should somehow um you know strike an iconoclastic position with respect to their to their religion basically and i would say that this is actually a mistake and it misunderstands you know why those things are actually functioning in this way the reason is is because they're actually the sort of the last gasp of the avant-garde in a way and so the paradigm of iconoclasm, which somehow people are now proposing against the institutions, is the very paradigm that these institutions are themselves founded on for the whole of modernism. We've seen this. The, the modernist avant-garde art institution is perpetually pointed at the past mm. and attempting to revolutionize the forms of artistic production by transgressing social norms, by transgressing social and political norms believed to be held by, you know, like the, let's say, bourgeois normie, you know, so we'll always be coming like more avant-garde than, than him, basically. And this is why now we're in a situation where, um, you know, positions that actually even relatively recently used to belong to 
like very marginal and radical spheres of society have somehow become central to a kind of normative ideology because almost like it's like what else is left you know like once you've uh, as they say um you know picked all of the the low-hanging fruit of hmm. um you know normative um like even like mindlessly normative uh points of view you become more and more elaborate and esoteric and we actually have like a really fascinating kind of mass esotericism now which is existing in mass culture you know and i don't know we could talk about that as well but this is another more complex subject so in any case to get to the point mm. the uh the first move is you get to uh, ideological opposition to the institutional ideology. But I'm saying that the ideology of the institution is actually being anchored in structural and political conditions. And somehow the necessity is to overcome those, not simply transgress those. And so I think this is what potentially you can get from art because at the very least, when you look at great works of art from the past, you don't see these same kinds of dynamics at work there. And you also see examples of, you know, like human greatness, actually, and, and spiritual greatness, which are very inspiring. Mm. So although it's not necessarily plausible to think that we can recreate the same things in the same form, the very fact that such you know, such work of power was once possible, says, well, why is it then not possible again? Yeah, to, to what extent do you, you know, because there's a couple of ways of thinking about what, what is needed from an artistic world. You know, you've, you, you spoke in your article, Art Beyond the Right, about, you know, how the, the establishment has sort of, establishment art has, you know, descended into creative exhaustion, cognitive dissonance and, and lies and so there's an element and you know you just spoke about how it's sort of um it's become so so narrow-minded and can't speak to anything trans transcendent so there's an element in which dissident art just needs to rediscover these these sort of general human virtues um and sort of speak in a more um speak to human spirituality and vitality in in, in, a, in a more direct way um, rather than getting sort of you know, um, hiding in oblivion and just trying to outdo each other on, on wokeism or, or whatever it is. But um, the other way is, is sort of assuming that there are, there is some, and we've spoken about the challenge of um, the challenge of um, kind of talking about left versus right, but there's, there's also, I guess the, the possibility that there's something sort of unique to, to the regime and there's a, it, that it speaks to a certain set of values and that dissident art needs to speak to, to an alternate, you know, sort of alternative set of values. So, yeah, to what extent do you think that it, we, it, it you know, dissident art just needs to speak in a in a more general sense and just rediscover and sort of speak in a more direct way about, um, think, you know, you mentioned again in, in the article Plato's notion of the beautiful and the good. Like, is it just as simple as um, speaking to that? And you think that will transcend 
political uh, boundaries, or do you think there are sort of specific values that need um, that are that are being lost and that are lost in the modern world and that need being rekindled? I think every revolution in art is a return to realism, and so mm. you can say that it's a return to a language for describing reality, for for grasping reality accurately. So it's a return in a way to a certain thought of virtue, but also a thought of vice, actually, to think about how, you know, the human condition is a moral condition in which individuals are presented with, with moral choices. And it's not actually about identification or membership in, in groups defined mm. by political repression. It's about individuals in their own life worlds dealing with things as they present themselves to them mm. so what is the language of art which is able to describe you know the experience of myself as an individual or yourself or this person these specific people this singularity of the human experience mm. and i think that this is what we don't have in contemporary art yeah. i think that we have we have a we have a impoverished language which has reduced itself to this kind of hyper flattened you know sort of pseudo theology of even bodies now we can't somehow speak of souls like we speak only of like bodies and like how bodies are you know racialized it's like this very it's this very anti-humanist vision, really, because you're not even dealing with people anymore. You're dealing with somehow just sort of systems and structures. Objects. Objects. Mm. Human beings reduced to objects. You know, and like, um, you know, we could talk about that from the point of view of how it kind of relates to transhumanist motifs. Um, I mean, that's another way of thinking about it. But you mentioned the regime and also Plato, and I think this is actually relevant. I mean, Plato is actually the person who really defines the concept of the regime. Plato's book um, that we know of as as the Republic, Politeia in Greek, um, should really be called the regime, actually. It's only called the Republic because Cicero translated it into Latin mm. as the Republic. The regime is a... The concept refers to something more than just a government it's a kind of social political and also psychological structure so you can have like a training regime for example you know and what you can see also at work in you know every given regime is a kind of psychology a collective psychology and also even like a like a fundamental psychology of certain kinds of political systems so we see that also in our regime. Our regime is, is a psychological regime. It's a social regime. It's the it's regime which determines the, the thinkable and the sayable uh, mm. and the legible in um, you know, Rancière's sense. And it's a regime which, let's say, privileges for forms of psychology over others. So basically, when you have all of these bureaucratic administrative structures that are predicated on imposing or encouraging a certain kind of you know conformism like a certain kind of personality rises through those structures and that is the personality of the regime that is the regime personality the normative regime personality and it's a kind of a character hmm. and um you know i think that 
we've reached a point where it's very clear in art that actually like the kind of personalities that are administering art are fundamentally anti-art in, in a way, actually. They don't have a feeling for art. Like mm. They don't really like have a spiritual um, sense to them, usually. I mean, I worked as an art critic for many years, actually. I mean, this was what I found. It was, you know, like I was going through these kinds of European museums and like meeting these kinds of artists and like nobody had this kind of, you know, I don't know, this kind of grace and this kind of beauty that you could see in, you know, different kinds of uh, contexts and in different kinds of communities. Everyone was just kind of playing this sort of like, I don't know, um, this sort of like game of, of I, I guess it was sort of similar to maybe like how artists would appear at like the king's court, you know? Like mm. just sort of this kind of game of flattering sort of power, you know, it's not yeah. like Andrei Rubilov in his church. It's like this kind of courtier sort of mentality. Yeah. Um, so, it, go on. Um, no, I was just going to say it's, it's interesting. So you sort of speak, it sort of speaks to this notion of um, art going in, in cycles then in the sense that as, you know, as a, as a regime, as an empire expands, and takes on more power and sort of chews up more of the raw material, chews up more of the human organic matter and sort of um, transmutes that into, you know, into basically soldiers of, of the system, um, into Agent Smiths, then, um, you know, over time, then eventually that uh, towards the end of the cycle, then everything in the society sort of speaks to that. And any artist, any art, then eventually becomes, um, it's the language of the oppressor rather than of the the sort of general human experience that you touched on earlier. So that's an, yeah, it's an interesting way to, to think about it. Um, just thinking in terms of, um, yeah, like the, the broader human experience is getting trampled as, as the regime, um, just kind of marches on towards its, uh, sort of inevitable collapse, um, slash, you know, its attempts at total dominion. Well, the Greeks knew that there was a cycle of regimes. So, you know, all political systems are mortal. You know, I mean, what happens is institutions are built, but then the people who build them die and, you know, they are functioning and the new people come in. And gradually, they start to decay, you know, they become in a way corrupt, you know, become in a way like uh, committed to their own self-perpetuation, like lose sort of touch with the reason why they were created in the first place. I think, you know, the work of Ivan Illich is actually extremely uh, interesting on these points because he describes very clearly how, you know, the health system, you know, the education system, you know, everything is now the transportation system is, is functioning counterproductively. You have an education system that makes people stupider. Mm. You have a health system that makes people sicker. You health have, ministers, health ministers that are morbidly obese. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's very symbolic, isn't it? I mm. mean, I think actually, I don't know, like perhaps this is just a crazy fantasy, but I think that the health minister should actually be should be nude all the time. They should be either a man or a woman. They should wander nude through the through the through the country, and um, you know we can all admire that, whatever. But that's another story. So. Um, you have a cultural system kind of makes the world uglier. I mean, that's what you have. I mean, it's like, mm. you know. It's um, it's terrible, really, uh, how you know these kinds of projects that are somehow conceived from the perspective of I don't know, like um, I mean, I don't even know if people even think about this anymore. But in in terms of let's say, I don't know, um, 
relations between uh, people of different races. Like it's not even like as if there's somehow like a project to improve those. It's like mm. just a kind of a project to intensify some kinds of, you know, hostility actually. And I mean, that's what yeah. we've seen. So everything is functioning counterproductively. And this is a symptom of, uh, I think, you know, a, a regime at a certain stage of, um, of the life cycle. Yeah. And so actually what we need to do, it's like, our task is a bit more difficult than just thinking, you know, we have to just remove the left, actually, because the left is also just kind of a symptom and in a way like a kind of sort of sort of consciousness of it, a kind of like fractured consciousness of it, or like the remains of, of, of its kind of consciousness. Like we actually have to rebuild these institutions, you know, mm. it's, it's a it's a active process. It's not just a work of destruction. Like we need to reassert, you know, it's it's the more principle. cultivation than than sort of destruction in a lot of ways. There's nothing to destroy. Everything mm. has already been destroyed. What we're looking at is is a landscape of destroyed institutions that are basically being controlled, um, you know, by kinds of forms of collective insanity, you know, administered by bureaucrats who don't even know why they're there in a way. Mm. So. It, it's like there isn't even a thought to oppose on the other side of the of the question. We actually even also have to reconstruct their thought for them because we have to somehow get to a position where we're able to have meaningful discussions about the world that concerns us, mm. you know, mm. as opposed to this purely polemical attempt to just destroy the other because because they make us feel bad and i mean that also even goes for you know the other who's trying to destroy us because because they feel bad themselves it's like i don't know i mean there is a sort of somehow like um kind of unpleasant aspect that you you encounter also like i think from the side of of the right broadly defined where they're like you know it's like um the sort of mocking i don't know very sad and angry people it's like yeah, well, you, sp yeah, yeah. you speak of the patholog the pathological um discharge as well that comes out of the um oh i can't remember the specific language but yeah you used a, a great term in, in your article about that as well and uh, yeah I'm, I'm with you on, on on this point very much yeah um go on yeah i mean i think that we just have to understand also that these kinds of um sentiments are really not constructive like even mm. though they might be um i mean they're understandable but it actually doesn't really make any difference whether it's coming from them or it's coming from us because it just sort of escalates into this it's kind of the task yeah this kind of like you know um i mean ultimately at the end of it you have this the war of all against all actually i mean this is the final stage of um of you know the left versus the right really is just a, is just a civil war and um i mean this is really what we actually have to avoid you know is not is not something that we should wish for at all yeah well i mean that would you'd think that would play into the hands of the the existing structure because in um 
you know, as you as you tend towards anarchy, then people are just gonna become much more happy with the with the familiar. Um, but um, it's in in a lot of ways, it's quite it's it's sort of a cause for optimism, you know, because when you when you get to you know when you frame it in the way that you have and framing it in this sort of broader battle, you know, the human against the anti-human, because to go back to what you were saying at the, uh, at the beginning of the conversation and the issue with just sort of falling straight into political operative mindset and ideological camps, when you're in the, when you're in those narrow camps and you're sort of thinking in terms of the language and the policies, and you might be thinking about problems that you have with, with immigration or whatever, and you, you think about how, how am I going to, God, how are we going to bring people around? There's no way, you know, they're so, um, they're so religious about these things. And that's that's you know when you kind of end in that mentality, that's sort of a symptom of being stuck in you know in a far too narrow realm. Whereas if you just if you just think of it in a broader sense, and you realise sort of how um, how bereft anything everything's coming of any vitality, any 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 sort of reason, any beauty, then you realise that sort of victory is is kind of inevitable if we if we sort of look to to cultivate those like you said rather than um rather than look to sort of so you know lay, basically focus on the person rather than the the broader the broader force that we're up against so yeah you know it's, it's interesting in a lot of ways it it's cause for for optimism for, and for not getting so <laughs> so sort of down about the the state of affairs i don't know whether um I don't know whether it's cause for optimism or not, or whether victory is assured either. But I do think that from the point of view of fundamental strategy, uh, our um, path is not just sort of just to smash, actually. It's somehow like we're aiming higher. It, it provides some clarity for strategy, yeah. Mm. So, you know, I I don't think, let's say, I don't think we have to be ugly. I think that actually mm. we can do better if we avoid that. Mm. And I think that if we, you know, I mean, the concept of beauty also for Plato, you know, the concept of the beauty, the beautiful and the good is, is totally central to his whole philosophy, actually, because what Plato does is he says, well, okay, there are beautiful objects in the world. But what is the idea of the beautiful itself? And this is where Plato gets his whole theory of forms from, you know, and this is the beginning of a certain kind of understanding, which I think then comes to define um, Western, you know, ultimately human thought, like in a, in a very fundamental way that actually beyond simply the sensible and, you know, the perception of objects, there's this realm of of the intelligible you know we can think about the form of beauty or the idea of beauty rather than just simply a beautiful woman rated on a scale of one to ten you know like we can think of a beautiful gesture or we can think mm. of um you know all of these all of these possibilities that that are actually real the world is much bigger than the purely material and quantitative. And this is, in a way, the uh, dimension of, of being on which 
I think the, the beautiful is somehow stronger than the ugly, you know? Mm. So, you know, without wanting to get too mystical about it, but all of these things have somehow been um, obscured, it seems mm. to me. And like, this is the, the, I think the question for people who are trying to see a little bit further is, you know, how can we actually regain a kind of sight of I don't even know of what, but at least beyond the kind of uh, ultra straightened point of view of the current thing, let's say, and the current epoch and like the current roller coaster or conveyor belt or carousel of, of shadows that just keep rolling past. Yeah, and that speaks to both, um, you know, from both in terms of looking narrowly at art versus art, right? So dissident art versus um, versus kind of establishment art, um, but it also speaks to the role of, you know, that challenge that you just laid out there. That's something that, um, you know, you're not going to do reading political theory. Um, you need something. Um, it's going to need to be communicated in a, and explored in a much more non-rational way than that. Um, that's all been that's all been really well i think we, i believe i myself read political theory i mean i don't know it's like i i think um i don't think there's like a one way of doing anything in a way and i just i guess that the point that i'm always coming back to and somehow trying to emphasize is that we have to be very careful with the language that we're using because the language that we use also frames the things that we discuss you know in a very fundamental way and we're kind of trying to get to a purer language and a more beautiful language and a language that we're actually able to, to live within and to live with and to use mm. uh, rather than being somehow oppressed by. So actually the question of language also with respect to a somehow like dissident or critical posture, I mean, I think that you can also see institutionally the discourse of institutions, the discourse course of contemporary art, the discourse of, you know, um, all of these neologisms that have been invented in the last few years, you know, that we're now somehow expected to embrace, you know, and how language itself somehow acquires these uh, sort of almost um, these kinds of distortions. You know, when we start speaking of, for example, like um, cis men instead of men, you know, like uh, this is what I'm saying. Like we we need a language which is which is purer than that. So I guess this is also one of the products of the magazine. But I can also see that I'm losing my. Uh, my sharpness now <laughs> so maybe this is kind of a good time to... yeah good good place to wrap yeah i guess um final final sort of i mean it could be could be pretty quick answer i just wanted to get your sense of where the dissident art movement is now and whether you um 
whether there are signs of encouragement, whether there's things that are being done well, and if there's kind of obvious things that are, are missing the point. I guess just a, a sort of quick rundown of, of where you think, um, to the extent that this can be called a broad movement, at to the extent that you think it's sort of on the right lines, or to the extent that you think it is, uh, you know, it's missing the point. Well, I mean, like, this is sort of the point that I was kind of speaking to obliquely before, but I, you know, very reluctant to embrace a term like the dissident art movement, because I think that, you know, that term is itself, you know, very loaded and kind of synthetic, actually. And I mm. think that, um, you know, is not, is not a term that I would myself ever identify with. And I think that for good reasons, a lot of people would be reluctant to identify with it. I think that one could ask whether such an identity is really necessary. Is any identity necessary? Or is it actually just possible to kind of, to kind of proceed without identity actually, and to, to think, well, okay, uh, people are going to call us what they will, but you know, we don't actually have to call ourselves this or even think of ourselves like this. I mean, we're in a sense, actually strangers in this world, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is only my personal point of view, but I mean, I, I embrace that, you know, I, I never wanted to become part of any movement, actually. Um, I don't think that I'm part of a movement. Mm. Um, I'm not really that kind of person, you know, and I, I can understand that there is a desire to be part of something more than, than oneself. But I think that that's a desire which has to find its own form of articulation. And it, it's like the retail dissident identity is actually something to, to be resisted because we need to be courageous about trying to tell the truth. That's true. And so if we do that, then we will put ourselves into a position where we sort of are experiencing significant opposition, right? And they'll call us whatever they want. Mm. But we're just trying to tell the truth, actually. And I think that we're trying to also, you know, we're trying to develop understanding and we're trying to, you know, we're trying to admire, admire virtues, you know, we're trying to also, you know, resist the vices in ourselves. And these are moral projects. It's not a, it's not a political project. I think the politics follows from it mm. because basically you, 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 the opposition comes to you, right? It's like when you are attempting to stand for something that, um, you know, let's say, you know, some kinds of organizations don't like, they will attack you, right? Yeah. And you have to somehow stand your ground because if you don't, then they'll take that territory. And this is the, I would say, essence of the, of the conflict, really. Like, to some extent, we're dealing with cartels, actually. And we're dealing with, um, you know, like these entrenched kinds of bureaucratic machineries, which have, I would say, really lost perspective on what they're doing. You see this in... You see this in the culture industry, in, in public museums, in, you know, the kinds of like um, 
you know, institutional art magazines. You also see this in Western governments. You see this in, you know, all the kinds of institutions are occupied by these people who, you look at these people and you think these people are insane, actually. And what they're doing is crazy. Mm. And, you know, somehow we have to try and restrain them before they do damage that we're not going to walk away from. And yeah, that's the challenge. Mm. And I mean, people have different ideas about exactly what that involves, you know, and I think that some people's ideas are more elaborate and let's say more overdetermined by their own personal psychologies in ways mm. that are probably unhelpful, mm. you know, and I think that Definitely. actually is, that's particularly true when you come to, you know, like, like certain kinds of reactionary positions on the right, which, you know, about like, um, I don't know, uh, like when people start trying to speak about natural hierarchies, for example, well, actually nature doesn't have any hierarchies. Nature is just a kind of sort of endless pulsing zone of power. You know what I mean? And like, I don't know, like these kinds of attempts to, to sort of ground certain um, attitudes in uh, like a direct line to the hardcore of reality. I don't think this is really necessary. I think actually what we have to do is just try and think clearly and act ethically. And then, you know, this will uh, lead us where it does. Yeah, that's that's all very well said. It's, you know, it's a tough balance when, you know, a lot of people, you know, let's, you know, to use the term dissident movement, you know, a lot of what's brought, grown the space is, like you said, people looking at the people in, in power and, and being quite afraid about, about where things are going. So naturally, um, this creates a sense of, of needing to, to do something. And also when, you know, it's quite lonely looking at the world in a particular way. And so you, you sort of, again, you're quite keen on A, um, meeting other people who, who think alike and B, trying to, trying to bring other people around. But there is there is this inherent risk in that in it becoming political right um and and at you sort of grasping at art and grasping at art as a as a weapon um which like you've like you've, like you've articulated very well sort of completely misses the point um so yeah that very much is the is the challenge that that people and the balance that people need to strike it's sort of wanting to yeah not sort of acting um having some sense of um of purpose in the world but without um forcing it without grasping at things and trying to act in in the most sort of organic sense possible um i so can say something else about that actually which is that i think it is somehow important to have a certain kind of space for also like uh, bad opinions you know like it's it's also necessary philosophically i mean if you consider you know what what socrates is doing like he goes around athens and people tell him their opinions you know and he said actually is that a good opinion or not let's think about these kinds of opinions like when you start criminalizing opinions basically or suppressing opinions and you, you destroy the dialectic of philosophy in a very fundamental way because now there's nothing mm. to respond to right mm. the whole point is you you begin from whatever crazy concept some person has come up with and then you start to say okay well is that you know, is that coherent according to these kinds of criteria, these kinds of philosophical criteria? And then you discover, you know, well, 
no, it isn't, but like this part of it is. And so this is what we can work with, you know? Yeah. When you say, you know, certain opinions are, let's say, beyond the possibility of dialogue, then you you destroy the possibility of dialogue as such, because you're saying mm. that actually dialogue has no real power. The power is only with violent repression. And so this becomes the principle of politics. Mm. So, you know, from that point of view, art obviously also is extremely significant as a space for the possibility of free expression, because if you don't have free expression, you can't build on that to get to the point you want to get to, which is ultimately, you know, the, the, the platonic good, actually. So mm. I think that the energy that's coming now or going into, you know, art from outside is also energy that is somehow seeking you know this kind of possibility of expression it wants to express itself and this is a this is a good thing mm. um i think that you know we should try and continue to do that and and see where it takes us you know and i would say that you know ultimately there is something infectious about it and inspiring and and it becomes i think it already is actually at a point where this is basically not suppressible anymore i think that the you know clear difference between how freely people are able to talk within these kinds of institutions and how freely they're able to talk outside these institutions um, is becoming very clear. I think that you know people who have, let's say, left um, the kind of institutional mainstream feel, in general, liberated by that. Mm. You know, people who are still within it are still, you know, like very knotted up and like confused and you know like kind of crazy actually in a certain way and they, they don't really think clearly so you know from a certain point of view that's of course quite uh problematic in itself because they do have all this influence and power but you know if you don't really know how to channel your power then ultimately you just do lose it really and there's a kind of um project which then develops whereby you know, how can we bring them to us? And that doesn't mean bringing them to our ideological positions. It actually just means bring people to a place where they are confident enough to think for themselves about the realities that concern them. And I think that this is what we're trying to somehow do. And you guys are doing a, a brilliant job of that. Yes, yeah, it's, it's almost about building the space and letting people come rather than trying to reach over and <laughs> yank them over um your way um yeah so on on that note do you want to share information about where people can find more about you or the the magazine i've got a copy of the magazine here i i really recommend people um people purchase one um purchase this one but you that you also mentioned there's a there should be one coming out another one coming out before the end of the year so do you want to speak a bit to to that and where people can find yeah more information about about you well, I mean, um, you know, I am 1776 uh, is we're on the web. 
um, at iam7076.com. Um, you can get issues of the hard copy there. Uh, issue two coming out at the end of the year is about Florida, like as a kind of space of possibility and imagination and um, and uh, you know we'll see what what that works out as. Um, I don't know anyone who wants information about me. I mean, I, I mean, there's not much to say about me. So, okay, perfect. Articles, I suppose. Yeah. I'll I'll put any links in the in the description. Um, well, yeah, thank you very much, Daniel. I really enjoyed that. That was a really great conversation. Thank you very much for uh, for the invitation. Thank you for listening to that. If you enjoyed the way that I think about these issues, then you might enjoy Pith Weekly. So Pith Weekly is my blog, which I email out every Saturday morning, uh, somewhere where I share my latest thinking on metapolitics. And I also share some highlights of what I've read. I'm always digging through some really critical texts uh, in the area. Um, and it's, it's something which is um, the center point for what I'm doing. Uh, you know, the reality is we don't really know what's going to happen and what platforms people are going to be kicked off of over the next few months, whether YouTube, Twitter, whether Gab's going to take off, but that will always be there. My email will always be there. I'll always be sending my, my best thoughts out and my best learnings out every Saturday morning. So I really hope some of you subscribe. You can find the link in the description um, and it'd be great to, to have you as part of my community as a node in my network. Um, so thanks again.